Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 435. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming as day show. First up, we have a little, little short bit of fiction, The Retirement of Captain Archibald Moore by Wendy Nickel. And guess what? It's narrated by Mike Boris again. He's like, the bus never comes and then it's three. So Mike, it's lovely to have you back on. Then we have an interview with Steve Humble. Steve Humble is a mathematician at over here at Newcastle University, for God's sake, man, the best place in the world. Yes, it's official. And Steve's going to tell her, you can, yes, you can, in theory, build a time machine. It's possible to go back and forwards in time. Man, 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 man. You need a certain few things, but, you know, it is possible. So having a, a nice little interview with Steve Humble about that. Then the main fiction is Beyond the Visible Spectrum by Axel Tayari. Now, <laughs> you know me. Yes, what's the chances I've butchered that one? And it's narrated by a good friend who I haven't actually had on the show for a long time, Jonathan Dans. Jonathan, nice to have you back on the mic, sir. So that is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, before that, I've been on holiday for a few days. We eventually got, I don't know if anyone can remember a few, last year it was, we were kind of all planned to set to go to Rome and then there was a fire in Rome airport. Well, it's a, a year to the day when we kind of left and set off again for a few days in Rome. And my good wife and kids left behind, yes, and our friends. 
And we got there this year. Just fantastic. I'll, I'll probably talk about it, you know, maybe next week. But I didn't know the news. And I just want to say, you know, I'm a bit saddened, really. Well, I'm very saddened. SF Signal has John DeNaro over there, has decided to close down. And this was one of the kind of the sites for me that when we kicked off, it was there. I think it had been going possibly a couple of years. And it was a great place just to, to dip into and just to enjoy. And I would I'll tell you what I loved for it now. It was like the short videos. You'd get these short little science fiction videos made. But it was a great, it was just a hub, you know, a whole community over there. It, it, it's a shame, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not really too sure how to take it because there was nothing like SF Signal, do you know? And some, yeah, there'll be sites come up now and go, but it just seems like we've lost a good dear friend, you know, in this community. And, you know, John says it's all down to, you know, just being, it's grown beyond anything he could have imagined and it's, it's, it's just too much now, you know, it's too, he wants to spend some time with family and friends and everyone else who's kind of works on it. It's just, it's got a, you know, it's too big for its its britches, so to speak. But it was, it's a, oh, what a, a shame, do you know what I mean? It was nice to have them there to, for that longest standing on a website. It was just, I grew up with it, you know, Starship Silver grew up side by side with SF Signal Land, you know, and we had them on SofaCon, John you know, do, doing the quiz and that, and they would, he was always keen to kind of, you know, help out and, you know, post things for Starship Sofa. And it's, you know, it's it's bittersweet when I've come back from Rome to find we've we've lost SF Signal. And hopefully, you know, they say the archives are going to be there for everyone to, to, to dip back in because that is a wealth of information. When, like, say, when we first kicked off, it was ideal. A great place, but then it just become this community, and it was just constantly putting out posts. Which you know, I think that was the the the, the key to being you know the success of SF Signal. It was the constant. You know, you put out posts once a day, once a week. It isn't going to, but there was just update after update. So you always wanted to kind of go back and check it out, and the the in depth you know mind melds. You know, talking about certain aspects of science fiction that. The author, you know, profiles. There was so much to SF Signal, and it is. It's it's a real shame that they've decided to. And John said they didn't want to reduce it down anymore. You know, like just maybe one post a week sort of thing. They just they went for the the clean cut. And you know, I just want to thank you, John, and everyone that you know was part of SF Signal. All the kind of hard work that's been done over there. It's truly an amazing site hopefully it's still going to be up there if we want to go back and check out the archives you know it was nice to have you along for the ride john it was certainly you know a site that was a comfort to me so good luck in your new adventures so let's get into the main well not the main fiction the little bit of fiction there tiny little bit of fiction by wendy nickel the retirement of captain archibald moore now, it was originally published in Welcome to the Future Anthology. Wendy Nickel isn't travelling in time, exploring magical islands or investigating mysterious phenomena. She enjoys the quiet life near the Utah mountains. I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. Washquash. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. I'll jump straight in. With her husband and sons, she's been in, she has a degree in elementary education, a fondness for road trips and a terrible habit of forgetting where she's left a cup of tea. Her short fiction has been published in AE, 
Daily Science Fiction and Elsewhere, and she is a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America. For more information, there's a little link there. Pop over to wendynickel.com. And like I say, this story, Mike, man, steady down, lad. You're two in two, in two weeks. Narrated by Mike Boris and official bio. Mike is a freelance narrator based out of his basement in the lovely Midwest of former American colonies. He prefers to read out loud for money, but he likes me enough to throw us a free board every couple of weeks. He's got a website, Mike Boris Audio, so you can pop over there and say a big thank you to Mike for doing this. Mike, you're a star, Wendy. What can I say? So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Retirement of Captain Archibald Moore by Wendy Nickel What's the airlock code? Captain Archibald Moore's eyes narrowed. Why do you ask? No reason, you know. No, I don't. What possible reason could you have for wanting that code when we're thousands of space clicks from the nearest port? The engineer raised his hands defensively. Hey, never mind, old man. It was just a question. He left the bridge, shaking his head. Captain Moore frowned. The stupid kid had no poker face. Something was up. Ever since the captain had let it slip to the onboard doctor that he was approaching seventy years old, his crew had been acting funny. Recruits in the mess hall stopped talking as soon as he passed their table. Officers gave him downturned, pitying looks. And just yesterday... His personal secretary asked him to sign a last will and testament, just in case. All around him, their murmurings and sideways glances accosted him. Some of the young guns must not think a man so advanced in years should be in charge of this ship. The whippersnappers didn't realize that with age came wisdom and experience. He punched the autopilot button and heaved his creaking limbs from the seat. Better go see what the fuss was about the airlock. Nothing I can't handle, he muttered, tapping his sidearm. He stopped twice to rest on the way there. Normally he'd press on so that no one would see how winded he was. But today the hall seemed strangely vacant. Where is everyone? The doors to the massive airlock were shut, but on the control panel a yellow light glowed, indicating that the outer doors were shut and the inner one unlocked. Through the square of glass in the door, Captain Moore noticed movement. Well, confound it, who's been messing around in here? He thwacked a button, ready to ream someone out good as soon as the door slid open. When it did, the shining faces of his crew beamed at him. Surprise! What's going on here? he asked, though the streamer's balloons and cake made it rather obvious. Happy birthday! the engineer slapped him on the back. Captain Moore balked, speechless for the first time in his long and illustrious career. Well, I'll be. The rest of the evening was spent whining and dining, feasting and dancing, and celebrating the captain's seventy years of life. He was the life of the party, and gratefully accepted their handshakes and embraces. Toast! Toast! they shouted, after the cake's candles had been extinguished. He raised his glass. I never suspected such a wonderful surprise. It's been a pleasure serving with all you fine people. There's one more surprise, the XO said. Wait here, we'll get it. Captain Moore chuckled as his crew bustled out. 
He couldn't even imagine what present they'd gotten him. While waiting, he reread one of the birthday cards and took another bite of chocolate cake. He certainly had underestimated them. The inner door hissed shut. Hey! Chocolate crumbles spewing from his mouth. What do... The airlock opened. So next up is a little interview I carried out with Steve Humble. And Steve, actually he's got an MBE, I didn't realise that as well. Steve is a professor there, teaching mathematics and all sorts of clever things at Newcastle University. How cool is that? And Steve wrote this paper on, basically, you know, if you wanted to do, if, you, if it was possible, you know, in theory, you could travel in time. Now, Steve, what is it then about, you know, time travel? Because it, it, no matter what, you know, and yes, science fiction, but we all, everyone seems to kind of yearn for, you know, this time travel trope. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of in us, isn't it? I think it must be in our DNA, this sort of idea that we, we, we all make mistakes or we all have really good times in the past and we, we want to go back and revisit that, don't we? I suppose that's the whole thing of why we take photographs and collect video of different things, because we, we like those memories, don't we? But what you're seeing is, though, you know, a maths professor there, you know, good on you, sir. You know, well done to take that profession up there. But you're seeing, you know, it's an actual science. And in theory, we could build, you know, in theory, I'm putting in brackets, we could build a time machine. Yes, well, like like you saw in my uh, conversation article, because uh, I, I titled it How to Build a Time Machine, there, there have been um, various um, mathematical physicists in the past that have uh, postulated different ideas of how, uh, theoretically, this would be possible. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 it's history of, of creating a, a time machine goes back um, to Einstein and and his sort of theories of of time and um, the whole space-time continuum. Um, but there have been quite a few other people in the scientific community that have uh, discussed this point. Before we get into kind of, you know, working it out, you actually mentioned as well in your article, like which I say, it's, it needs to be read. It's, just, it's, a, it's a nice one just to kind of, you know, you think, oh, it could possibly be done. But you also mentioned as well, you know, this new thing. Everyone's talking about these gravitational waves. And you're saying, basically, they could unlock the secrets to the universe. Do you know what I mean? Is, is that possible? Well, you see, when uh, that's what sort of inspired me, really, to, to write the article. Because um, in, in physics, uh, there, there is this idea of a theory of everything some sort of unification point where we could bring together the laws of nature and somehow um, unpick how, how the whole universe sort of gels together. This idea of, of unification, we, we've seen in the past, and I, I think when I, when I watched the scientists on the telly sort of, um, you know, being really excited about these gravitational waves. What my in my head, I was thinking, oh, they were thinking this is like in Newton's day, or it's like with Maxwell and his equations, or it's like with Einstein. So we've had these great moments in physics where 
these great people have, have sort of unified everything together. Uh, we've been, if you like, if you think all the way back to Newton, in in those days we were we were in the dark. We weren't too sure what what gravity was. Uh, we still aren't too sure what it is now. But but Newton sort of he he was a revolutionary of the time because he suggested that the force of gravity could act between two bodies without anything in between. So at the time they thought this was like black magic or something because there was no string that was pulling these bodies together so they they had these ideas that there had to be some medium where one body was attracted to the other one so there had to be something in between uh, and so you imagine newton's work at the time um, was put into the public press of you know that gravitation was like love's gravitation pulling bodies of people together and it was love's force so there was that sort of uh, i suppose almost comical aspect because people were so um unsure about this sort of theory so we'll, we'll get up to the kind of present day then and baby steps steve if you don't mind you know but you're saying with a little bit mathematics you know that you kind of you learned at school and throwing a bit of einstein's time dilation formula you can actually you know prove that someone's is, is moving through time yes so uh, this I, is what i want to hear man Do you know what I mean? <laughs> this is this is the stuff that it's all about so so einstein and in the article i um i have a link to his first paper and um, the first part of his paper isn't isn't that complex it's it's sort of that's why I mentioned about Pythagoras, because all he really uses is he just uses a little bit of Pythagoras that we all learned at school. Um, because this sort of time dilation idea, if you imagine if, uh, well, what, what Einstein does is he does a thought experiment. So the thought experiment he does to get this time dilation formula is he says, if you imagine you had a light clock and all that was happening is you had two parallel plates and you had the light bouncing back and forward between the plates. Every time it bounced from one plate to the other plate, you were measuring the time. Yeah, so if you can imagine that sort of visually. Yep, I'm drawing a little drawn. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so you've got your two parallel plates, you've got your little beam of light bouncing back and forward, up and down between the plates, yeah? Now, in, in normal life, when you move, if you move forward the light's still going to just bounce up and down between those two plates. Uh, but if you start moving very fast, what you can imagine is instead of the light bouncing up and down between the plates, it would bounce off at an angle because you'd be moving so fast forward right. that the, the light wouldn't be able to go from a point directly on the bottom plate to directly above on the top plate. It would actually move at an angle because you're moving so fast forward. And so what you get is you get like a little triangle, and you basically get Pythagoras' triangle. And so um, you've got the, the, the speed of light, if you imagine of a, a stationary person, is the one that's just going straight up and down. The, the angled one is the one that, um, as you were moving forward, and then the the other side of the triangle is the speed itself. Actually, if, you, if your listeners look at the article, they'll be able to see this little diagram. 
And so they'll see that. And then all all Einstein does is just use a, a little bit of genius and he, he uses Pythagoras's formula and he comes out with this time dilation formula. And basically this formula tells you um, that if you travel very fast, then what happens for you, time moves at the same speed, but relative to the rest of the, the universe, if you like, um, time for them is, is moving slower. Well, it's, it's actually, Steve, my, one of my favorite books is a, is, a, is a gentleman called Joe Haldeman, and he wrote a story called The Forever War, where he kept, you know, this soldier kept on going out, you know, and doing exactly the same thing. And then by the time he gets back, his mother's aged. And then by the time he goes out to fight another war in the future and comes back to Earth, you know, society's all changed. And that's just, you know, it's just riffing off that exact formula, what you've said there. I, I think it is. There's a, in, uh, in physics, there's something called the twin paradox. And it's exactly what you're talking about there. The idea that somebody would get in a spaceship, they would travel out for like 10 years, and then they would come back. And when they came back, um, everybody else would have aged 30 odd years. So they would have only aged 10. So that it's, it's a form of traveling into the future, isn't it? Well, let's let's leave the maths because I'm I'm quite happy to leave the maths behind. <laughs> Steve, do you know what I mean? Let, let's get the exciting stuff in. How how do we build a time machine? <laughs> right. So uh, I, I do put in the um, in the article as a health warning, of course, <laughs> <laughs> because um, just like I've been talking about with with Einstein's idea of traveling in a spaceship very fast, the sort of speeds we're talking about here are extremely fast. They're like um, hundreds of thousands of times the magnitude that you would normally travel. You know, a spaceship um, leaving Earth probably does about 10 kilometers per second at its top speed. Um, but to, to get any sort of future travel, if you like, for time to slow down enough for you, you'd have to move sort of 280,000 kilometers a second. So, you know, uh, we're, we're way, um, nowhere near sort of being able to manufacture vehicles that could move at that speed. So that's that's one way we could do it. So if we could manufacture vehicles and we could survive those sort of pressures on our body, then we could travel into the future that way. Um, to travel into the past, there's a very famous uh, a physicist called Frank Tipler, who back in 1974, he created this idea of his um, cylinder. So he, he said that if you built this very big cylinder and started it spinning, what it would do is it would, um, it would warp space and time so much that as you moved around the cylinder in the direction the cylinder was spinning, you'd be traveling back in time. And if you kept traveling round and round this cylinder, you'd go further and further back into time. Um, there is a, there's again a, another health warning because, because imagine this, this Don't worry about the health warnings. <laughs> but this cylinder's got to be like as massive as our sun, squashed down into a, a big rotating cylinder. So imagine the gravitational um, pull on this thing as you got close to it. It will probably squash you onto it. Uh, even even these days, if you go to um, normal everyday life, they, they don't let oil tankers get too close to each other uh, because if they did get close to each other, they would just stick together 
because of gravitational forces. Right. All right. I never knew that. So imagine that's just a very big vessel. But we're talking about here a, a massive amount of mass, the, the size of the sun. Um, so if you got if you got close to, to that, it would just squash you on its surface. So again, we've got uh, we've got to get round those sort of issues. So who who was Frank Tipler then? Was he uh, like a, a regarded you know well up scientist? You know, because when he brought this idea out, would he, surely most people must have went mm, weird on there. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he had um, uh, a fellow called Kurt Gödel, who again was a uh, so they're both um, physics professors, um, but a fellow called Phil. Uh, Kurt Gödel um, did actually come up with his same sort of idea back in about uh, nineteen um, late nineteen forties. So, you know, for for Frank Tipler again, a professor of physics, to do this in the seventies, okay, the the general um, physics community, some of them maybe think he's um, a little bit crazy. Uh, but again, you know, you've got to just look back in into the past. And like I was saying about Newton, people didn't think that um, that, that he was completely sane. You know, they thought he might be doing some sort of black magic type sort of stuff by having these uh, forces without this medium. And, and even when Einstein first proposed his, his theory, everybody at the time had created this ether that they thought everything had to travel in this ether. Because, again, the whole idea of having a, a force and there's no medium for it to travel through um, is, is quite a difficult one for us to come come to terms with. Is, is Frank Tipler still alive today, Steve? Yes, he is. Yes, right, yes. Right. He's, a, he's a physicist. Yes, right. and so there, there, there have been um, other physicists who I didn't even mention in the article because I, I'm sure some of your readers, are, um, or listeners, sorry, uh, uh, have heard of um, sort of like wormholes and um, and all this sort of idea, which again has been proposed by other physicists more recently. And the whole idea that you could travel through cracks in space and time, and well, that's what I was going. I was going to say, is that is the Tiplab one just the only method, or is there you know quite a few different methods to get back in time? <laughs> oh yes, yeah. There's been various ones proposed. You know, um, sort of orbiting round spinning black holes, or or going through these wormholes that maybe exist at the quantum level. And being able to slip somehow through through cracks in space and time, so there's there's been quite a few people propose various things, but all of them, of course, have um, serious health warnings uh, because they involve either suffering large gravitational effects, uh, which will sort of squash you or um, you know make your your body have uh, suffer lots of. Uh, issues oh steve they're just tiny hurdles to get over we'll, <laughs> we'll get we'll get that sorted out you know with your kind of kind of mathematics come you know we can prove time travel is possible can what else can you do you know what i mean because i've honestly schooling and, and it just didn't go together at all do you know what i mean yeah you kind of when you get older you kind of cram it all in so you know what else is possible with ma- mathematics well, I, th- I think this again comes back to this whole unification thing, um, and this is again why scientists are so excited, um, because you, we just don't know what these uh, gravitational waves could mean. 
Um, you have to think back to, uh, again, the, the 1800s, and you have a, a very famous uh, Scottish mathematician stroke physicist uh, called Maxwell. And he, he unified the idea of electricity and light and the whole his, – his unification of those, he created these four equations that sort of put together all the ideas that were going around at the time about electricity and light. And it's because of him that we then came across radio waves and we came across microwaves and the whole sort of – from those sort of 1860s on, onwards, we, we started to uh, – you know, the whole thing about inventing uh, telephones and televisions and, and, and all that development that we now take for granted. So maybe these gravitational waves have their own spectrum, like, like a light spectrum going off. You know, with the light spectrum, you go off into the microwaves and the X-rays and the radio waves. So maybe these gravitational waves have this same sort of spectrum. And maybe from that spectrum, we can, you know, new dis discoveries of the future might just be waiting to, for us to find. I mean, that's the kind of the exciting part, isn't it? You know, because when when it first announced the gravitational waves, waves, I was kind of, I, I don't understand. I don't know. Then I kind of watched a few videos and was like, oh, it just opens up every. You know what I mean? It's just like it's a bigger, bigger viewing of the kind of everything there. So you think, oh, we might just discover something else. Yeah, because they've um, the gravitational wave that they found. They, they've only they, you know they've they've stumbled across this one frequency. So goodness knows what what else is out there and what what discoveries. It's probably um, great science fiction writers that'll inspire scientists of the future to think what might be possible with these sorts of things. Because that has there's a bit of a history, isn't there, with that where science fiction is sort of inspired science to to think about what might be possible well when you can you read science fiction i mean as long as i've been doing you're just kind of you're just dreaming of days when all this is going to you know happen <laughs> you just wanted to kind of happen now and like say when i've seen your article i've I've heard about tipler a, a, a while ago do you know what i mean i'm just thinking oh man just Let's get Steve on. Let's just get a bit of excitement going. Let's see what, what little hurdles we need to cross to build this time machine. Yes, I, I, um, but uh, like I say, I'd, I'd recommend your listeners not not going into that back garden shed and and getting a big hunk of metal and and putting it on an axle and starting it spinning because. You know that that could be quite dangerous, couldn't it? If that big hunk of metal comes flying off and uh, <laughs> smashes through their shed or whatever. Now, yeah, Steve. Last question then. Now you know I'm going to put you on the spot here. You're a maths professor, so you should really know this answer. Do you know what I mean? It's it's pretty, it's one of the ones you get the job with. You know, knowing this correct answer there. What's the answer to life, the universe, and everything then? I think it has to be 42. Oh, I got it there. Well done, sir. <laughs> I just love that. Thank you so much. Steve, it's been an honour to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. There you go, an excellent. That's, what can I say, man? You know what I mean? It's just exciting. Oh, it doesn't matter if it's got to be huge, massive, you know, size of planets spinning and all sorts. 
it's possible. That's the nice thing about it. That's the cool thing. It's impossible. So a big thank you to Steve for that. Steve, you're a star. Thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction, and it is Beyond the Visible Spectrum by Axel Tayori. Axel was born and raised in Paris, France. Publishing credits include Abyss and Apex, Fantasy Scroll and The Big Click, and other magazines and anthologies. He is the co-author of The Soul Standard, to be released by Danzak Books in 2016. And again, there's a link on to Axel's site. Big thank you, Axel. And like I say, this story is narrated by Jonathan Dans. Jonathan exists in a parallel dimension that looks especially like West Virginia. When he's not trudging over a rock or route on his velocipede, he labours to hammer stories out of unruly words. With the help of his wife and daughter, he manages to keep track of his car keys, his priorities and his mind. Should you ever find yourself in the dusty corners of cyberspace, you may glimpse words and coffee. That's Jonathan's site there. Just pop over to jonathandans.com. Fine fellow. A fine Jonathan, a fine fellow, sir. Nice to have you back on the show, sir. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Beyond the Visible Spectrum by Axel Tayari. In sleep, I see what lies beyond this world. Vast shapes skulk in the cold crevasses of the cosmos and slither through the fissures of reality. They glide through the void in perpetual craving, unscathed by the ravages of time and cellular decay. They are as they once were, and as they will continue to be. Amorphous shapes squirm and spread across the skyline, then coalesce into organisms the size of moons. Dimensions rupture like dehissed wounds. Alien suns cower before slippery swarms. An eye opens. Plump spores rain down from orbit. There is nowhere to hide, and I must. Distant noises. I meander in and out of consciousness. Colossal insects. Whirr. No, the frequency is mechanical, not organic. Drills. The dreams recede. Disjointed thoughts hit me in staccato waves. Where? Yellowstone caldera. Way below the resurgent dome and the geysers. Past the water reservoirs and the brine close to a soothing pocket of basaltic magma. The heat reminds me of home. This is my nest. The humans have found me, as they always do. I am grateful for this intrusion. I have been dreaming for too long, and I will be hungry soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Dust settles. Rocks crumble. Heavily armed troops enter my domain. One of the soldiers pokes my cocoon with a probe. The cocoon's membrane bursts and splashes her with miasmatic juice. The acid chews through her armor, skin, and bones. She collapses, dead but still melting. The others back away and open fire. Electricity jolts my nest. I do not feel any of it. The soldiers stop and dispatch remote-controlled vehicles. The dog-sized contraptions advance on tracks and slash through my cocoon with near-proximity lasers. I fall out. The vision of my form, sprawled on the floor and drenched in its own liquids, prompts some of the humans to gag. It is freezing outside, barely 55 degrees Celsius. I cannot move. I am a prisoner of my own biology, for now. This torpor will last for days, longer in a colder climate. The drones drag my body into a plain carbon steel drum reliable enough to transport nuclear waste. My prison is then loaded onto a plane. Onboard machinery spells out our direction via binary sputters, a subsurface laboratory in the far reaches of Antarctica. Fully fed and awake, I could spend months standing still in a blizzard, but after getting ripped out of my cocoon in the midst of regenerating, cold is the last thing I want. Bathing in lava would shock my system back to life. A few minutes on a windy beach would trigger a narcoleptic fit. The plane gains altitude. The temperature plummets. Maggots squirm and feast on pallid meat. Black blood bubbles out of gelatinous soil. The eye knows I am here. The maggots burrow into my tail and I try to slap them away, only to realize I am still in my cage. These visions are wrong. Something is happening. With what little energy I have, I plunge into the spectrum. Radiations in a dizzying array of frequencies hit my skin. Radio waves bounce against the ionosphere. My pores soak up the refracted downpour of sky wave propagations. Ultraviolets and infrareds purr. Gamma rays bombarding the ozone layer echo like distant drums. I am too feeble to sift fully through all the ranges, but can easily tell the air is bloated with artificial noise. How long have I hibernated for? Sixteen years based on the plane's flight instruments, a short nap. How quickly a whole planet can morph. A ceaseless flood of machine-made waves drowns out the Homo sapiens grunts. I detect something irregular lurking in the alcoves of that deafening static. No, I detect some thing. It is dim, far from this quadrant, but strangely close at the same time. I try to hearken to the alien resonance. I follow its trail like a frenzied bloodhound, and a surge of dread plows into me. The thing reeks. Its presence emits signals on myriad wavelengths. In its putrid radiations, I witness the dust-scattering rings of distant magnetars. The charged particles of pulsar wind nebulae crackle at the gravitational pull of dark matter. 
amoeba-shaped alpha lobes twist grotesquely in the dark. The Boötes void opens its non-mouth and gobbles up galaxies. Gas giants cower in the blinding, high redshift pulse of quasars. A blue straggler abides by its vampiric nature and sucks the hydrogen from nearby stars to retain its youth. I behold the universe's predatory beauty and... I feel fear. The humans keep me in a sterile room. I am in a large cube made of radio-opaque material, bulletproof, multi-layered glass, according to its subtle quivers. Outside of the cube, two scientists study me. Their voices, fundamental frequencies, disclose their genders. One male, one female. This specimen is roughly five feet tall, vaguely humanoid, but seems to share features with mollusks and gastropods. Some sort of mucus drips from its skin. Does it move using muscular contractions? I can't see any legs, so you may be right. I count six, no, seven appendages. Are they tentacles? Tendrils? It could use those for movement. Their poise is admirable. The speaker's voices are composed and steady, free of laryngeal spasms. I suspect the use of relaxants. No eyes or any organ that might allow it to see. It might be blind. Wrong. Lack of eyesight does not imply blindness. It is easy to keep a goldfish in a bowl of stagnant water and fail to be impressed by its tetrachromacy. Some humans are blessed with aphakia, and others dare to call them handicapped. One of the scientists, the female, approaches the glass. She is now close enough for me to decrypt her biotag. Dr. Lisa Marino. Not so calm, after all. Her heart rate is elevated. Sweat gathers in the small of her back. Her body reels with the wrongness of what I am. In her stomach, gastric acid attacks a recently eaten bagel. A couple of centimeters away, a tumor clutches to her pancreas. The tumor is gorgeous, shaped like a meaty cloud the color of nicotine. Can you understand us? The woman says. Spoken words are nothing but air displaced in discernible patterns. I try to move one of my tails to reply. Her male colleague, remaining at a safer distance, says, This thing doesn't even have ears, Lisa. Move. Move. Doesn't mean it can't understand us, she says. She tries again in multiple languages. Ce que vous me comprenez? Me entiendes? Wakarimasu ka? The answers are yes, we, si, hi. She could try in Italian, Chinese, Latin, Arabic, in any accent or patois. Were she able to wield Sumerian, I would scrawl logographic symbols depicting the fall of Ur. Should she address me in ancient Egyptian, I could draw hieroglyphs of the black ziggurats built in my honor now resting far below the dunes of Giza. But I am paralytic. My body craves warmth. The ambient temperature in this prison would suit a mammal. If I remain here, then I will die, and so will Lisa Marino, her colleagues, and the majority of life on Earth. My senses do not betray me. Lisa Marino turns to the male. Let's run some preliminary tests. The scientists leave. I expected them to start with close contact tests, such as drawing blood or gathering skin samples. I suppose they deemed it too risky. Their survival instincts prevailed over their curiosity. Their remote probing begins with environmental testing. Gases are pumped into the room. 
Oxygen drops to 2%, then rises to 100. Hydrogen sulfide fails to provide any result. Q-butane, ethane, halocarbon, helium, silane, neon, propylene, and on and on. Hours crawl by. If only they knew, I don't breathe. Lisa Marino and her colleague return to take a closer look, through the safety of the glass, of course. Its skin isn't showing any reaction at all, she says. I don't understand what this thing's made of. The male says, Should we try to adjust the temperature? Yes, Lisa Marino says. I brace myself for freedom until the thought hits me. I might fall asleep and never wake up. Current temperature, she says, 24 Celsius. Bring it down to six. Let's see. Unseen machineries come to life and shuffle energy. Docile molecules replace their agitated counterparts. Minutes flash by. The scientists' body heat vanishes. Their voices dwindle. The range of frequencies to which I am attuned shrinks to that of a jellyfish, then shrinks some more. The world fades, and so do I. Did it just move? Did anyone see that? Holy shit! Sensory floodgates burst open. My insides stir. The temperature is 61 degrees. I understand. I fell into a slumber, but the humans, after leaving the room, turned up the heat. Unconscious, I must have twitched without realizing it, like a cat surrendering its motor control to the puppeteers of REM sleep. 63 degrees. My retracted antennae thrum. The voices did not come from this room. Good. I am no longer useless. The login terminal outside of the chamber speaks, offers the name of every single person who works here. I chart the room. Glass cube, cement floors and walls. Cameras, laser tripwires linked to alarms. Gas pumps, speakers, fire sprinklers, creaking pipes, wires snaking through the walls. The only exit consists of a 25-ton blast door. Hiroshima's little boy would barely scratch the paint. Nagasaki's fat man might do it. How do I get out? I need a burst of heat, flames, or an explosion. Could I use electric sparks? Impossible. Even if I could force the humans to pump flammable gases in here, the sprinklers would render my efforts futile. 67 degrees. Radio waves undulate through me and divulge the presence of 345 different computers connected to the same network. The content of their hard drives remains cryptic for now. We can't raise the temperature much higher. We'd have to move it to a different compartment, Richard Rankine says over a distant microphone. Bring it up to 70 degrees, Lisa Marino says. 69 degrees. A computer in the hallway reveals the existence of an armory two floors up. Grenades would do the trick, but I still feel too weak to blink, and even if I could... I doubt it would be more than a couple of meters away. Seventy degrees. I slap one of my tails against the ground. My appendage whacks wetly against the surface and remains there, flaccid as a dead snake. I had hoped to make a dent in the cursed thing. Pathetic. Screams of joy and surprise erupt over the airwaves. Lisa Marino brings her mouth close to a microphone, and I imagine her shaking her head at the stupidity of her question. Do you understand me? I tap my tail once, still too weak, but at least it's movement. She gasps. Richard Rankine says, 
it doesn't mean anything. It may just be a muscular reflex, perhaps a reaction to sounds or variations in temperature. I move again. Richard Rankine shuts his mouth. If you understand this, Lisa Marino says, move your tail twice. I oblige. Contact has been established. Lisa Marino faces me, separated by glass. Six soldiers stand next to her, three on each side. They don't carry anything I could use. Diplomacy may be my only way out. Tap once for yes, twice for no, three times if I misunderstood you, or if I need to change my question, she says. Understood? One tap. Do you, Jesus Christ, do you wish to harm us? One tap. This is not a lie. Her use of the word wish is careless at best. Are you... Are you from this planet? Two taps. Are you alone? Three taps. Clarify. Are you the only one of your kind here? One tap. This is my dominion. Did our tests hurt you? Two taps. No, wait. Three taps. Then one. The cold. Do you need something from us? Finally. One tap. Food? Two taps. She remained silent for nearly a full minute lost in thought. I tap three times and she says, Okay, okay, let's get back to basics. You were asleep. We took you from your resting place, brought you here, and you fell asleep again, but you woke up. And you've been hurt. One tap. Was it the temperature? One tap. You need us to increase it. One tap. A loud one. Anything else? Oxygen, water, humidity. Two taps. Over the sound system, Richard Rankine says, It could be lying to us, Lisa. What if we raise the temperature and this thing does something? How eloquent of him. He's right, she says. We can already communicate in a rudimentary way. If we raise the temp, nothing guarantees our safety. I slowly lift up a tail. The guards tense. Even more slowly, I point the tail at the glass I'm encased in, the cameras, the soldiers' weapons. My message, you've got the upper hand. Something occurs to me. This whole complex must have been here for several years. They were prepared. Lisa Marino's composure is a clear sign of drugs, yes, but also a sign of long weeks of training. One does not encounter a new life form with such casualness. I don't understand, don't yet have the potency, to plunder the data that might provide an answer. Lisa Marino says, I'm sorry, but I would rather await further instructions. Are you at risk if you remain at this temperature? One tap. Not a lie. She didn't ask if the temperature itself was the risk. She sighs. Richard, what's the max temp for this containment unit? This containment unit... This means there are more. Awaiting further instructions indicates a plan. Eighty degrees, Lisa. I don't think... Make it eighty degrees, she says. She readjusts her coat, takes a deep breath. I'll be back in a while. If you try anything, we'll bring the temperature down, way down. Will you remain calm? No other human has dared to threaten me before. She is growing on me. I reply with a single tap. A lie.
80 degrees. The clock ticks. It has been over an hour since Lisa Marino and her lapdogs left the room. Could I blink now? Or would I splat against the glass walls? Perhaps not even reemerge at all? Too frail for my body to handle the transfer? And even if I blinked, what would I do then? So I stay still and gather strength. I feel it in the way my receptors open up. My understanding of recent technology grows with each passing second. My vocabulary expands. Lisa Marino is six floors below, video chatting with a scientist in Beijing, asking how quickly they could ship one of their T-ray scanners. They discuss the use of full-body scanners, thermographic and SPECT cameras, mid-range Doppler ultrasonographs, and a litany of other devices that will tell them nothing. Above and below her location, I map the heat pulses of scientists milling about the building like hyperactive ants, digging into the data they have gathered. Building. Data. Why did they build this place? I sacrifice a fraction of my juice and slither through the nearest wireless signal. SHF radio waves lead to the router, which guides me to the central network and the armada of computers connected to it. Heavy encryption shrouds the evidence, but encryption is code. Code is binary. Binary equals electrical states. An effortless read. I process the information. Instants later, I stumble upon a hard drive with details about this location. This isn't the only compound they built. There are two others, one located in the Sahara Desert and the other in Death Valley. The humans know they're not alone. I believe they've always suspected it, the suppressed truth clinging to their reptilian brains like a cautionary tick. But technology has given them proof. They've been searching all around the globe, and they're digging for more. This is how they found me. Not chance. Not randomness. They were ready. Or so they thought. I maraud through bits. The image appearing in my mind's eye triggers something I have not experienced in centuries. Raw, pure, beautiful anger. They're building a gate. Those dumb bipedal wastes of carbon. I see the pictures now. The maps, the schematics, the emails exchanged. Beneath the Krubera cave, hidden three kilometers under the surface, is a monument to madness. Pillars loom over an underground construction site. Two fusion-powered pylons, the color of obsidian, enshrine the gate's yawning mouth. That thing I felt back when I was being transported hasn't found Earth by itself. The humans are inviting it, building a bridge between here and the void. The portal must be in its final testing stages, almost functional. How else could I have suffered the thing's presence, waiting behind the door, its stomach rumbling with never-ending hunger? And what does that make me? A test run? Just a small catch while they wait for the big fish? The hubris of those monkeys. They've misunderstood their sentience's defining purpose. Consciousness is the ultimate evolutionary trick. It allows the humans, as well as my kind, to ponder and fear the existence of hypothetical predators. Precognitive terror is a gift. To ignore it is insanity. Instead of hiding from the unknown, they've decided to confront it. They've forgotten what it's like not to be the dominant species. I never forget. This has allowed me to endure the eons. 
but I am only a small blip on the cosmic scale. There are worse things than me. The humans don't know. They've never blinked past the clouds and tried, really tried, to see what this universe is. They're not wary of living organisms big enough to encompass stars. They've never observed interstellar bacteria devouring mineral giants in a matter of days, then vomiting their DNA into the vacuum, letting it drift until it reaches a new system. Farmer mycophages infecting worlds with mutated fungi, altering the landscape as they see fit, readying it for consumption. Packs of elephant-sized beasts that would make tardigrades look fragile, latching on to passing asteroids and gorging on their gases. So humans take a walk through the dark with a flashlight, shouting into the abyss in hopes of what, exactly? Finding mommy or daddy? Curing their loneliness? Solving their philosophical cravings for answers? I don't want to be alone out here, cries the prey. Don't worry, you're not, growls the predator, bearing a bloody grin. I can't afford to wait any longer. I must get to the armory. I hit the ground with my tails, testing my strength. A scientist watching the feed whispers to his colleague, Did you see that? I slam the floor harder. The glass walls tremble. Ceiling lights blip once. 170 guards receive an alert on their ear chips and pour out of their rooms. Lisa Marino hangs up on Beijing, runs for the nearest microphone. Lock it down, she screams. No choice. I picture the armory's location and blink. My body wanes. Molecules separate and glide in unison as if lifted by the same quantic stream. Photons entangle, shift, duplicate, and die, leaving room for newer copies. For an instant, I am nothing, and I am at peace. Then I rematerialize and crash into a wall with enough force to trigger every single alarm in the compound. I was too weak. I only flashed out of the cube. Desperate plan. I'll wait for the guards to come in here, suck their juices for a brief boost, and then, Do not enter that room, screams Lisa Marino over the speakers. Everyone, remain where you are. I repeat, do not enter that room. Behind the door, 83 soldiers stand still, rifles at the ready. She's going to bring the temperature down, as promised. Smart. It's a matter of minutes until the cold cripples me once more. I focus on the armory, visualize its position in space by chasing power currents, its dimensions and contours, the walls I must pass through in order to reach it. I plot a mental path and blink out into a hallway, right in front of two soldiers. Oh, fuck, one of them says, just before I instinctively slap him hard enough to pulverize his spine. The surrounding spin as my brain recalibrates its internal compass. I'm not where I should be. The second soldier raises his weapon. I smack it away, impale him using three tails, lift his body up, and wait for it to stop seizing. I consider draining him, but detect boots stomping around the corner, Sixteen soldiers on the move. I'd have to kill them all in order to drain uninterrupted. I can't afford the waste of energy. I blink, hoping for the right location this time. Bullets rip through my body as I subside. I reappear in another hallway and collapse, shaking from exhaustion. Bullets plop out of my flesh. My internal juices begin the healing process, weakening me even more. This is the right place, though. The armory is down the hall, thirty meters away. I sense the touchpad on its door. 
I try to blink once again and pain explodes within my chest, intense enough to maim my receptors for a split second. I've depleted myself. I may have one jump left, a potentially crippling one. Lisa Marino compared me to a mollusk and a gastropod, back when I was in her glass cube. If only she could study me now using my extremities to propel myself, creeping along like a vulgar octopus advancing on dry land. A security camera spots my movements and turns its flashing eye in my direction, prompting a base-wide radio freakout. Soldiers will be here within thirty seconds, maybe less. I crawl, each forward movement slower than the last. Keep going, I tell myself. You will not die here. Not like this. Not to them. I reach the armory. The elevator at the opposite end of the hall dings. Its doors open, and soldiers storm out. I squash myself against the door and focus. I blink with everything I have left and reappear on the other side of the door. I stumble and thrash around like a fly with its wings ripped off. My awareness grows treacherous. Reality slants. Plain waves morph to flat lines, then become spikes. Light bulbs on the ceiling cough up aliased halos. Soldiers screaming behind the door sound like squeaking mice. Something is pummeling my torso. My head. I realize I'm hitting myself with my tails, but only six of them. The seventh was lost in the latest blink, leaving behind an open wound from which juices squirt. I miscalculated the trajectory. Concentrate. Find the grenades. I'm not strong enough to discern the faint signal of a motionless grenade anymore, so I must rely on touch. I blindly ruffle through the shelves, shaking and convulsing as my internal organs fail. The soldiers try to open the door, but it's sealed shut due to the alarm. We need the armory on floor B2 unlocked right now, one of them says into his headset. I knock over entire rows of rifles, backpacks, med packs, and night vision goggles. A tail latches onto something vaguely ball-shaped. It's a flashbang, so I discard it. Bulletproof jackets, guns and knives, helmets, ammo, and I... ETA, ten seconds, another voice says. Grasp another item. Yes. I turn around, bring the tip of a tail to its pin. The door bursts open, and the grenade explodes. Air particles break the speed of sound. Fire engulfs everything. The detonation bathes me in 1,100 degrees Celsius. In the span of a millisecond, my abdomen hardens. Antennules sprout out of my skin. Electrosensors swell. I spit out sinusoidal discharges in monstrous waves. They ripple through the base. I perceive every life form in a four-kilometer radius, from the cockroaches scurrying across bathroom tiles to the fish-fat albatross riding air currents above us. The base's complete topography emerges in my mind, its structure sketched by power lines and radio waves. Time sags, and I see everything. I am awake. I am hungry. Before the room even begins to collapse, before the blast knocks me backward or reaches any of the soldiers, I blink out of the armory and into Richard Rankine's office. My tails undulate behind me. Flames dance on my smoking skin. What? He says, losing control of his bladder. I leap forward and pin him to the ground. A prehensile proboscis blossoms out of my skull. I stab the appendage deep into his chest and suck him dry. His skin withers like a fruit robbed of its moisture. His eyes get swallowed deep into their sockets. His organs collapse, shrink, 
and liquefy as I siphon them up. Liters of blood pour into my bloating stomach. Richard Rankine's connective matter rips apart. My seventh tail regenerates as I eat. I suck and suck until nothing remains save for a pile of collapsed bones and teeth. Another warp. I reemerge in Lisa Marino's office. The guard doesn't have time to aim. I swipe and behead him. Blood geysers out of his neck. His body slumps to the floor. No, please, Lisa Marino says, backing away until a wall stops her. I extend a tail, grab her by the neck, and bring her closer. My proboscis lengthens again and Lisa closes her eyes. I pierce through the skin of her stomach and she lets out a yelp of pain. I navigate past the rectus sheath, the transverse colon, the stomach, and locate the tumor. Instead of sucking, I spray some of my vital fluids, then retract the proboscis and release my grip. She opens her eyes and brings a hand to the slow bleeding wound. She is too shocked to speak. I dip a tail into the dead guard's blood like a quill in ink and write on the wall to my left, Tumor. Heal. With another tail, I point at the first aid kit hanging on the wall. Why? She says, I don't. I write, I will come back. This is not a threat, but an offer. Cultists have their uses. Smart, knowledge-starved ones even more so. I vanish and reemerge in an empty room, free from distraction. I tap into the computers, the networks, the power lines, light bulbs and heating, artificial web strands that spread around this place and allow it to function. I unleash the closest thing I have to a roar, an electromagnetic pulse powerful enough to shut it all down. Generators fail, alarms are muted, monitors go black. Two drones drop out of the sky. Every vehicle has been disabled. The nearest working electronic device is over a thousand kilometers away. Darkness descends. Humans, well, they scream. I will return soon. I have stored my food source. I would never let it spoil. And so I blink again, through walls and layers of cement and concrete and steel, out into the ultraviolet light of day. I land on a hill, dash upwards, snatch a passing bird and drain it, then discard its carcass. The remains dim on the infrared and succumb to gravity. Cloud droplets emit a dazzling symphony of crackles as they freeze. Molecules swirl in a never-ending binding ballet. The sun spews deadly rays through a cloudless sky. I blink into the ocean. Pillars of radiations hammer the surface with unrelenting intensity. Distant whales hum songs of sorrow. Wavelengths ebb and flow untangle, coil and bend like dithering rainbows. The earth spins through a vast, carnivorous cosmos. I am heading to Georgia. I will shred my way through anyone in my path, race beneath the ground, deep into the network of caves. I will face the gate. But before I punish and then devour the humans guarding the place, right before I make the walls collapse and let rocks bury this folly forever, I will grant the thing on the other side a single peak. I will meet its ravenous mouth, and in that sliver of time, where nature's clash in hopes of asserting dominance, I will spit out a single message with my antennae. This is my territory.
Big thank you to Axel for that story. Axel, thank you so much. Hopefully, we'll get Jeremy to kind of fleece another one off you, if that's possible. And Jonathan, a fine narration. A fine one. Lovely words. So that is Starship Sovas, 434, was it? Or 35? 35, yes. Put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, the week when SF Signal, a fine blog, Hugo winning blog there, closed down. Bit of a, you know, kind of a sad time for me, you know, a sad time for everyone. It was a, a nice place to kind of go in in the cyber world there and, and hang out and just, you know, get submerged in science fiction. Big, you know, I just want to say a big thank you to John and all the team, you know, over there at Science Fiction Signal. <laughs> science Fiction Signal. It just it was a, a remarkable website, a remarkable place that brought science fiction in, into our homes every day. Thank you for putting the time and effort in, John, and everybody over there. JP Franz, even Matt Sanborn Smith was on there. There's just so many, you know, posting in there. Big, big thank you. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This pre- Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.